let's move on to heart failure, chronic heart failure. Um, first of all, what is the definition of heart failure? Yeah. When the heart does not meet the demand for blood flow, cardiac output, that the body wants. So very important that we don't think of heart failure as your heart has stopped. That's the, you know, that's the layperson thought. We know that your heart is working just fine, just not enough. Now, what's the body's usual response to when your heart doesn't pump enough blood? Sympathetic and renin-angiotensin-aldosterone. So let's, um, let's skip for a moment down to um, the heart isn't doing enough, so the body gives out the sympathetic and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. What's that going to cause? What symptom? What what issues? What symptoms? Increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. Here's one of the things that that confuses people. You have a patient who has heart failure, but their heart rate and their blood pressure are both high. How could they possibly have heart failure? The heart's doing great. No, the heart is working harder, but is it being effective? No, because it's in heart failure. Okay, and the problem is, the harder the heart works, the ultimately the weaker it's going to become in terms of being able to pump blood. All right, so we have elevated heart rate, high blood pressure, and what else? Increased fluid. So ultimately, what? symptoms are we going to get because of that increased fluid? Symptoms and signs. Alright, edema. Okay, in what two places generally speaking? The legs or the lungs, depending on which side of the heart is failing. And usually it ends up being both sides. People who don't equalize to both sides tend to die pretty quickly. Alright, what else? Okay, and um, adds to the high blood pressure. And what else? All right, decrease urinary output. They're going to have weight gain. All right, now, because of the heart failure, what symptom is the patient going to have, generally speaking? Fatigue. Okay, fatigue, and what else? Shortness of breath. Now, starting out, when's the shortness of breath going to occur? Well, when they exert themselves. So at rest, will they have shortness of breath? No. And in fact, in the very early stages, the earliest stages of heart failure, the patient has no shortness of breath. So they're going to have, really, sometimes the early stages, all you have is elevated heart rate and high blood pressure. And then over time, as the heart fails more and more and more, you begin to get all of these other symptoms. Um, one of the ways of classifying heart failure severity is by the amount of shortness of breath. It's called the New York Heart Association classification. Class one, no shortness of breath. Class two, shortness of breath with moderate to heavy exertion. 
three. What do you think that one is? Shortness of breath with mild exertion. And mild can be anything from, you know, walking walking to your mailbox to brushing your teeth, put, getting dressed in the morning. That's mild. Moderate would be like, you know, climbing a flight of stairs or carrying in groceries. But they're st and still not like necessarily trying to go up go up six flights of stairs in the parking garage or you know, like run a marathon. That's not moderate. That's heavy. And then four, shortness of breath all the time, at rest. Um, pretty simple, right? Okay. Now, um, how do you think we can treat these symptoms? Okay, first one is diuretics. Which diuretic? Lasix. Or any other loop diuretic, but Lasix is the most popular. Um, how else can we fight that? Not alpha blockers, beta blockers. All right, so beta blockers are going to slow the heart rate. They're going to lower contractility. What does that do to the heart? It protects it from the sympathetic response. Now, what's that going to do to cardiac output? It's going to make it go down. What's that going to do to the patient's heart failure? going to make it get worse, at least at first. Over the course of about two to three months, though, it should actually improve cardiac output. Um, have you ever met someone who was so excited, and the words were coming out so fast that they couldn't get the words out? And you're like, I have no idea what you're trying to say to me. And so you got like you gotta like calm down. It's like usually like a little kid. Uh, and then and then you should have seen it. It was just like it was so cool and, and the words can't come out. It's kind of what happens to the heart in heart failure. It's being told and slammed with, with sympathetic response and renangiotensin aldosterone so hard that it's pumping too fast, it's not filling up with fluid, with blood, enough to have a good pump. So it's like, and it's not getting enough cardiac output. So slowing it down, calming it down, even though it hurts at first, ultimately make it better. So that's the beta blocker. What else? What else can inhibit the renin angiotensin aldosterone system? ACE inhibitors. Um, and ACE inhibitors, or if patient's allergic to that, what else could we use? An ARB. All right, what else? What else inhibits the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? Potassium Not potassium-sparing diuretics. One specific one. Aldosterone. Aldactone or spironolactone. And there's a newer drug, that clarinone, but you don't need to know that for your test. Sorry, I told you. But then I warned you that you don't need to study it. Um, all right, that's pretty good. Now, is there any drug that you know of that can increase cardiac output, increase contractility? Digoxin. So these five drugs, or drug classes, are known as the big five. Just like Africa has the big five animals, yeah. here we have the big five heart failure drugs, and you must know them. 
calcium channel blockers. What do we say about calcium channel blockers and heart failure? Big, big no-no. Unless you're trying to kill your patient. In which case, it's okay. Yeah. Yes, because it inhibits the contractility. And not, not just, not just so like beta blockers suggest, hey, don't you want to slow down? Don't you want to mellow out? Don't you want to not pump as hard? Whereas the calcium channel blockers make it so it's impossible for it to pump harder. They break the mechanism of the pump in the first place, the muscle. Um, so you need to know those big five. Now, there's two different ways it can fail. One is if it doesn't have enough blood in it to pump out. What's that called? What's it called when the heart fills up with blood? What? Uh, well, that's what the blood is called, but what it, systole, systole or diastole. So diastole is when the heart fills up with blood. And if we have a failure to fill up with enough blood, we call it diastolic failure. Please do not get this wrong on the test. Please do not mix it up. So diastolic failure is when the heart does not fill up enough. What could cause diastolic failure? Say again? Okay, um, so if you just have a lack of blood flow going back to the heart. So extreme venous pooling could be one, but that'd be more like acute renal failure, not chronic. So let's focus on the chronic. Okay, not necessarily atherosclerosis. Okay, and a bleed would be acute. That'd be hypovolemia. We're not, we're not going there. <laughs> Same difference. Dehydration, that doesn't work. So let's, let's think about the heart itself. What was the first thing we did in, in today? Hypertension. What do we say the hypertension does to the heart? It makes it work harder, which in turn makes it bigger. As the muscle portion of the heart grows bigger, what grows smaller? The chambers. So there's less room to fill up with fluid. So hypertension, or ventricular hypertrophy in particular, can cause diastolic failure. When does the heart fill up with blood? During diastole, when it's relaxed, right? What happens if it's pumping so fast that it never has a chance to fill up? So certain tachydysrhythmias can cause that, like atrial tachycardia. What are the phases of diastole? Nah. It's rapid filling. Remember that? No, you don't. Know, you don't know that. You ever learned it in AMP two? All right. Well, in the beginning, you know, the heart relaxes, blood just rushes in. That's called rapid filling. At the very, very end of diastole, something occurs which puts 
just a little bit more blood into it. Where does the blood go? First from the vena cava to the to the atrium, and then from the atrium through the valve, tricuspid valve in the case of the right heart, and then from there into the ventricle. What happens to push whatever's in the atria down into the ventricle? A contraction. What's that called? Atrial contraction, also known as atrial kick. So if you lose atrial kick, and what would cause a loss of atrial kick? What's this? Atrial fibrillation can cause diastolic failure because you lose whatever blood was in the atria from your preload. Um, what valve does it have to go through to get from the atria to the ventricles? The tricuspid on the right and the bicuspid on the left. So if you have an AV valve stenosis, the blood can't get through from the atria into the ventricles. So you got several different causes of why you don't fill up with blood in the first place. Now what's the other way we can have heart failure? The heart fills up just fine, but it can't push it out. And that's called systolic. Now, with systolic failure, the way we measure it is through what's called ejection fraction. So the ejection fraction is you take the amount of diastolic volume, and then after the heart is pumped, you see how much got pumped out. Divide that as a fraction, turn it into a decimal, and that's your ejection fraction. So normal ejection fraction is 65% and above. You need to know ejection fraction. So if your patient has heart failure and has a normal ejection fraction, what kind of failure do they have? Diastolic. If their ejection fraction is low, what do they have? Systolic. All right. So that's what? Uh, it is possible. And don't ask me what they would have, because I don't know. It would depend on the patient. Do you have to know the formula? No. You just have to know conceptually what it is. The percentage of blood that left heart in one beat. So the first thing we need to know is what causes systolic. Give me some causes. Death of the myocardium, or at least parts of it. What's the number one cause of that? Heart attack. Heart attack, yeah. Especially what kind of heart attack? Repeated heart attack. So multiple MIs is the number one cause of heart failure in the United States. Would you like me to say that again? Yes. Repeated MI is the number one cause of heart failure in the United States. Would you like me to say that again? Okay, you think you got it? We shall see. 
All right, one more time. Repeated MI is the number one cause of heart failure in the United States. Um, they're doing construction in there soon. All right, so uh, back to uh, oh, so what else can cause it? Do you remember the Frank Sterling Law of the Heart? Yep. Sterling's Law of the Heart. The bra strap law. The more you stretch the strap before you let it go, the the harder it hits, right? But what happens if you overstretch it? It gets weak. So in a patient who has too much preload, fluid overload, that person will have lower systolic, they'll have low ejection fraction. So they fluid overload. Now, what is the pathophysiology of heart failure? What do they do? They hold on to fluid. So ultimately, the body's response to heart failure is going to make the heart failure worse. And that's a key thing to remember. Is this is a disease where your body's response to the disease makes it worse. Okay. Um, so death of the myocardium, fluid overload. What are some other problems that can cause lower, um, lower cardiac output? Does blood have to go through a valve? The aortic valve on the left side and the pulmonic on the right. So that could cause it if you have stenosis of those. What happens if the bicuspid valve doesn't close when the heart pumps? Blood goes backwards. So if we have uh, regurgitation or insufficiency on the AV valves. Um, and then I want you to put down pulmonary hypertension. So COPD ultimately leads to pulmonary hypertension, which in turn will lead to right-sided heart failure. Pretty cool, huh? And that can happen in really young people sometimes. Um, not necessarily through the COPD route, but if they have pulmonary hypertension for whatever reason, they can end up in heart failure at relatively young ages. Yes. Pulmonary hypertension. Because remember, ordinarily the lungs are very low resistance, and your right heart doesn't have to pump hard at all to get the blood, you know, just goes right there, right back. But if you got pulmonary hypertension, all of a sudden the right side of the heart has to really work for it, and it can't. It's just not designed to. It doesn't have enough blood flow. It doesn't have enough muscle mass. So um, pulmonary hypertension leads to heart failure much, much faster than regular hypertension. Yes, ma'am. Lifespan of someone with heart failure it depends on. They can live for like 20 years or more. Yeah, depends on. I mean, it depends on the reason. Um, heart failure patients are extremely high risk for dying with, like, if they have another MI. MI is the number one reason why heart failure patients die. They don't die of the heart failure itself most of the time, no. depending on the reason. Yes, we'll talk about that in a second.
COPD leads to hypertension, which leads to CAD. Pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary. Which leads to right-sided heart failure. Is that core pulmonary? Core pulmonary, yes. So not CAD. Not CAD. All right, um, so we've got some causes down. Now let's talk about the progression. Um, with the treatments, most patients can do okay, but when the body gets out of whack, it does what we call decompensating. So if, if their heart failure gets worse or they you know, stop taking their medications or whatever, or maybe like they're taking their medications but they stop getting absorbed because they're not taking them the right way, just whatever it is, um, what's the body going to start to do? to compensate. Sympathetic and renin angiotensin, it's doing that the whole time, right? But as it gets worse, the sympathetic and the renin angiotensin and aldosterone take over. And what's the first sign of that usually? What's, what's the best way we can detect it early? Not edema. Not really high blood pressure. The answer is on that board right now. Weight gain, right. So what do you want to do? make them weigh themselves every day and keep a log of it. And if it goes up, 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 they need to go see the doctor. Because sometimes just medication adjustment or lifestyle adjustment, we can prevent them from decompensating. But wouldn't that necessarily mean that our kidneys are not pushing out the fluids that we need? Wouldn't that be like acute renal failure? Not renal failure. It wouldn't be. A Heart failure can lead to acute renal failure. It can also lead to chronic renal failure, but that's not the issue here. It's, it's not the best way to screen for heart failure. All right, so here's your Starling Law of the Heart. As the amount of fluid goes up, force goes up until you start to come down the other side and force goes down. So when we have a patient who comes in, we call it an exacerbation of heart failure, come into the hospital with a heart failure exacerbation. Usually what's happened is they're way, way out here on the Starling Law of the Heart curve. What do you think the focus of our care is? Decreasing the heart's Decreasing the heart's what? No. What do you think we want to do on this curve here? We want to shift them back along this curve over to here, right? How do we do that? Decrease fluid. How do we do that? Diuretic. What's the focus of the care? What's the focus of the care? What's the focus of the care? Say it loud enough for the people to hear in the microphone. What's the focus of the care? What kind of diuretic? Loop diuretic. So remember, this is the time where... You know, some of these patients come in with 10 pound weight gain. How many liters is that? Five. Sometimes they come in with 20 pounds weight gain in a week. How many liters is that? It's like nine. Remember, it's 2.2, not an even two. But anyway, nine liters of water. Do they look different than like a regular? Yeah, what do they look like? Dehydration city. No, sorry, edema city. <laughs> <laughs> it's like evenly distributed. 
Just checking to see if you're uh, making. Um, is it evenly distributed? It's typically in the legs and in the lungs. So they're also going to have extreme shortness of breath. It's usually the shortness of breath that makes them come in. If they're smart, they've been checking all along. And they go to the doctor and get fixed up and never come see you in the hospital. Um, they're going to be shortness of breath. They're going to have S3 heart sounds. What's that mean? Fluid overload. And they're going to have crackles in their lungs. What does that mean? Fluid overload. So generally what you're going to do is you're going to diurese them like crazy. Now, how long do we say it's, it takes before IV Lasix really begins to work? Like four minutes. So ideally you would have them cathed so that, so that you don't have to be running around crazy um, cleaning up their wet bed. Now, I mean, with it, you know, you can give them a urinal if they're a guy and they can just pee in the urinal. They do have urinals for females, but they don't really work very well. Uh, we have one in the lab just so you can see what it looks like. And when you look at it, you're probably going to think to yourself, I don't think that's going to work. And you're probably right. Um, so anyway, um, diarese them. So what's the focus of care? Diarese them. Now, Digoxin can take this curve and it can raise it up a bit like this. So no matter where they are in the curve, they still have more contractility than they did without digoxin. That is what we call the blank effect. It's a tropic effect. Say it again. Inotropic. See, I knew you were a genius. Inotropic. Now, this holds for what we call med-surge med admissions. If the patient is even more severe, don't trust them in a medical surgical unit. Got to send them where? To the ICU, the intensive care unit. And in the intensive care unit, um, we will still diurese them, but we're also going to give them inotropic medications. Inotropic medications that are stronger than digoxin, what are they? Not beta blockers. Beta agonists. Yes. In this case, the patient will die while you're waiting for the beta blocker to kick in. They don't have two to three months. They have two to three hours. So they need to have the heart be told to pump as hard as it can. Get your lazy butt out of bed, you stupid heart, and be pumped for all you're worth, or you ain't going to be around for another couple more hours. And that would be beta agonists. What, what beta agonists in particular? Epi. Not epi. Nor epi. Leave a fed. Dopamine and possibly dobutamine, although dobutamine is not so much for heart failure. But it is used sometimes. Dopamine and leave a fed are the main two. And then there was another drug that we talked about. Say again? Nasiratide. What is nasiratide? Yes, you do. Artificial BNP. Which causes what two pro what two things to happen? Diuresis and vasodilation, which makes it easier for the heart to pump because it reduces afterload. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, it can be used for it, it's just not used that often. All right, now, with Nasiratide. Um, Nasiratide causes the diuresis, and it also causes vasodilation. It's only used in the ICU. Um, so you need to know the difference between an ICU admission and a med surge admission. Do you know what the difference is? No. <laughs> What's the focus of care in a regular admission? Diuresis. diuresis. With what kind of diuretic? A loop diuretic. What's the focus of, of care when we send to the ICU? Still diuretic, but add inotropic support. Okay, support. With what kind of medications? Beta agonists. Beta agonists, catecholamines, which would be? Norepidopamine, dopamine, and your serotonin. Yeah, levofed and, and dopamine. And another drug, nasiratide, which is artificial BNP. Speaking of BNP, you can use BNP levels in the bloodstream to measure the severity of heart failure. Because when, when does the body produce BNP? When the heart's feeling overstretched. So the more that's produced, the more overstretched the heart feels. The less is being produced, the better off the heart thinks it is. Now, does that work if you're giving nasiratide? No, because it looks like BNP, right? Got it? So we can use BNP levels to measure heart failure, and we can use artificial BNP to treat heart failure. Please do not get the two confused. Go ahead. No, that's Dijoxin. And Lasix. I know, it's so difficult. <sighs> All right, lifestyle. What do you think people with heart failure feel like doing? Nothing. Is that a good thing for them? No, it's a bad thing for them. Um, over time, patients who have heart failure, what did your parents tell you if you said, Mom, it hurts when I do this? What, what did they tell you to do? Don't, Don't do that. You know, that's horrible advice sometimes. Because if what you're doing is moving a joint and they say stop moving the joint, what do you end up with? Frozen joint? That's no good. I have to have surgery or physical therapy. Um, when you stop using muscles, what happens to the muscles? Not only do they atrophy, but they also become less efficient at extracting oxygen out of the bloodstream and using glucose and ATP energy. So if you stop using your muscles, not only do they get weaker, they get less efficient. Now, if you have a problem, heart failure, where they're not getting enough nutrients in the first place, you think that's very good for them? No. So patients who have heart failure need to exercise. Only we call it cardiac rehab. What is cardiac rehab? Exercise. <laughs> very slow, monitored exercise, you know, because it's all they can do sometimes to get up and walk at all. But Cardiac rehab can work miracles with some patients. Um, what they've found with research is that the amount of fatigue and tiredness that, and shortness of breath that a lot of patients have, it's not being caused by the heart failure itself. It's being caused because they're de so deconditioned with their muscles that their muscles just can't handle anything. 
Got it. Yes. Yes, it's cardio, yeah. They have like actual cardiac rehab places. Yes. Yeah, a patient goes in. in a yeah, some are hospitals, some are freestanding. You know, basically the patient goes in, checks in, they put them on a monitor, and the patient does a little treadmill. Or if they can't walk, they have these little hand hand cranks, and they do the hand crank, or, you know. Or they maybe they do a bicycle or something like that. Uh, I mean, it's... When you see some of them, I mean, it's like the, the exercise they're doing is like, you're like, that is so pathetic. But that's all they can handle sometimes. But if they do it regularly over time, they'll get much better and they'll have a lot less shortness of breath. All right. Um, any other questions about heart failure? Is it advisable to tell them to like, try to walk as much as possible like, to keep up? Or is that pushing it Within reason. In the early stages of heart failure, absolutely. Um, once they've once they're at the point where they start needing to be on all these medications, then they really need to be monitored while they exercise for the most part. So don't just tell them, "Hey, go take walks." But I mean, almost everyone who has heart failure will benefit from exercise. Just needs to be the right kind of exercise, and generally speaking, they want to monitor it just because you know you could die and or you could get a dysrhythmia and die and whatever. All right, moving along. 